following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This morning's text is from John chapter 8. John, I read it a few minutes ago. If you'd like to turn to it and have it open, you certainly could. We're looking at verses 31 through 37. And I have um, this morning three words that I want to talk about and three questions that I want to ask, one for each one of the words. The first word comes up pretty quickly. Jesus is talking to uh, these followers of his who have recently come to believe in him. If you were here last week, you remember that they went from uh, not understanding what he was talking about to believing in him in the span of uh, what, what takes John about two or three sentences. And to these Jews who have just come to believe in him, he says something which becomes, would go on to be, one of the most quoted sayings of Jesus. A saying which I can almost guarantee everybody in the room could finish for me, whether you are a long-time churchy nerd or whether this is your first time in a church ever. What he says to these people who have recently become believers in him is, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Nobody's hearing that for the first time, right? Um, Our translation says, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We probably have all heard it as uh, set you free. That's, I think, a more common translation for most of us. This is the kind of thing that is... Uh, has been repeated and put forth as an inspirational saying so many times that it has begun to lose its meaning. Uh, We could probably stick this phrase underneath an arbitrary picture of a mountain or something and and make a motivational poster out of it. Hey, look, there's one. (laughs) Truth, it will set you free. It has become so commonplace for us to say it and hear it said that it may surprise us to think and realize that what happens when he says it to these new believers is that they take great offense at this statement. But if you can sort of wipe clean the slate of your mind on which this phrase has been written over and over again and read over and over again and just look at the words that he says, you could understand why they might be offended. Because what he says is, you will know the truth. And what does that sentence imply if not that currently, at present, you don't know the truth? How many of you, when you were teenagers, or if you are not an adult yet, if you're currently a teenager or a preteen or uh, somebody, how many of you have been told, oh, you'll understand someday? How much do you like hearing that? Does that just warm your heart when someone says, you'll understand someday? No, we hate being told that we don't know what we're talking about. And to make matters worse, he not only says, you will know the truth, but he says, the truth will set you free. And what does the sentence, it will set you free, mean and imply, if not that, 
Currently, you are enslaved. You are in bondage. You are in captivity to something. So now can you see why these new believers might take offense at the statement, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Their response to him is as follows. We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. Which, come on, guys. <laughs> what is the most important story in, in the Jewish history? It's the story of the Exodus, <laughs> where God uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt where they have been in slavery. <laughs> right? And now, currently at the time of this story, they're in Roman occupation, which is not the same as being in slavery, but it's not very good, and they don't exactly have all the autonomy in the world. They're not exactly living in an uh, uh, amber waves of grain state here in Rome, right? They don't sing any Lee Greenwood songs about King Herod. They're like, they're like children when you, not the children in this room, but the, you know, the ones down there, the little ones, when you say to them, you seem really tired, you should go to bed. What do they say? I'm not tired, Right? We are descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. That's the childish response. But then there's a very uh, reasonable question that they ask him, which is, what do you mean by saying you will be made free? It raises the question, free from what? We might all ask that question. But they are not going to like his answer. (laughs) And you and I might not like his answer any better. Because what does he say? You are slaves to your sin. Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I know. Get out the sandwich board signs and the megaphone. We are going to the Amherst game. (laughs) We're going to tell all those people walking by that they're sinners. Nobody likes to be told that you're a sinner. And then he goes one step further and he goes after the thing that gives them their entire sense of spiritual and religious identity, which is their familial connection. They've just responded to him by saying, we're descendants of Abraham. And he is very subtly and then not so subtly going to go after that. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, he says. And then he says, the slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a permanent place. The son has a place there forever. So what he's saying to them is, because you're slaves, you are not members of the household. You are not the son. And for us, we might include daughter in that. You think you're descendants of Abraham? You are not the children. You're not the heirs. You're the slaves. And what are you slaves to? You are slaves to sin. 
Sin is the first of the three words that I want to talk about this morning. So let's talk about sin. Our English word sin comes to us, as far as I can understand, uh, from archery, right? How many people, without uh, Googling it, can tell me what color the bullseye of an archery target is? If you said red, you're wrong. You're thinking of darts. It's gold. I have a picture here of an archery target. In archery, there is a term for when you hit the target, when the arrow strikes the physical target but misses the gold. Missing the gold is called a sin. S-Y-N. And it's that term that has become our religious word, sin, S-I-N. And uh, as far as I can understand, this is consistent with the Greek language, which is, uh, of course, the language that John is writing in. The word for sin in Greek also means to miss. Now, I don't know that it has an archery connection specifically, but you could think of it as the same idea. Shooting at a target and missing. I don't know about you, but this is a little different from how I was taught about sin in my church life growing up. Now, I'm not, uh, I had uh, very good parents and grandparents and, and youth leaders and Sunday school teachers. They really, they changed my life. They taught me about Jesus, okay? I'm not trying to disparage them, but the broader culture uh, within my church growing up was that sin was not so much trying and missing because you're not skilled enough. It was more like you are deliberately rebelling against God. It's an act of wanton disobedience that needs punishment. It wasn't until I was in seminary in my 20s that I began to, that I came to realize that that particular understanding of sin is much more prominent in the Western church than in the Eastern church. So the Western church, particularly after the time of St. Augustine in the 4th century, and even more particularly after the time of uh, Luther and Calvin during the Protestant Reformation, and then even more and more particularly when we get to the uh, Puritans and the modern-day fundamentalist movement, that is all this Western stream of understanding sin only as an act of wanton rebellion. And let's be honest, sometimes it is. Our Eastern brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers talk about sin quite differently. And they talk about sin much more like aiming at a target and missing. Rather than sin being always an act of direct disobedience, it's a failing because of a lack of maturity or knowledge or understanding or experience. And so you can think with me for a minute, let's just walk this metaphor out with the archery thing, right? Think with me for a minute about um, God as the coach of an archery team, right? And there are two problematic archers on the team. One is uh, a young archer who uh, is trying very hard. Every time she tries to hit the target, um, most of the time she, she misses completely, but sometimes she actually hits the target, but she never quite hits the gold, 
And the other young archer is obstinate and stubborn and doesn't want any coaching and refuses to practice. Maybe in frustration and anger breaks the bow over his knee and storms out. Now, would the coach in that situation deal with those two athletes in different ways? Of course. Of course he would. To the one who's trying but failing, he might instruct. Now, hold your elbow higher. Don't forget to account for the wind. And don't forget to adjust for for distance. Let's work together and figure this out. To the rebellious one, the coach might say, um, you're benched, or I don't know if archery has benches, but like, <laughs> you can't shoot arrows in the thing on Saturday. What is it, a meat? I don't know, what, what, archery, <laughs> what archery people do. You're off the team, right? And our God in the Western church sometimes is even worse. As the kid is dejectedly walking away, having been kicked off the team, the God coach that we know picks up the bow and arrow and fires one right into his butt. And that's just a hint of what's going to come later, where for the rest of eternity, you're going to be getting arrows in the heart. Sin. As rebellion. Or sin as missing the mark. Missing the gold. I would submit to you that in either case, you could be a slave to sin. It's easy for us to think about being a slave to the, the rebellious kind of sin, right? If you're promiscuous or if you are uh, the type of person who exploits others or takes advantage of people or if you're a, a, a thief or an, uh, an abusive, violent person, it's easy to think about being a slave to that. Here's my question for you. I said I had three words and three questions. My question for you about the word sin think of it as the S-Y-N type of sin, is what does it look like to be a slave to that kind of sin? To the kind of sin that tries and misses. That's what I was thinking about this week. And maybe you'll join me in thinking about it some as well. So the first word is sin. The second word I want to talk about is the word Abide. And if you are the type of person who, uh, like me, as the preacher is talking, you're reading this, the passage to yourself, um, <clears throat> you might wonder why abide came up. Because in this translation, the word abide doesn't appear, does it? Which is sort of a shame, because the Greek word for abide, which is meno, it's a fun word to say, meno, it sounds like somebody from Philadelphia talking about a baby fish, right? <clears throat> meno get some milk for my menos. Um, <clears throat> the word meno is one of John's favorite words. He uses it no fewer than 33 times in his gospel. It's used another 20 plus times in the letters of John. It means to abide or to stay or remain or to live continually in an ongoing way. That word meno is actually used three times in this passage today, although the translators of the NRSV didn't come up with abide any of those times. Um, the, the second and third time that he uses it are close together. If you look with me at verse 35, where, remember it says, the slave does not have a permanent place in the household, the son has a place there forever. What it actually says is the slave does not 
abide in the house forever. The Greek says into the eon. The slave does not abide in the house into the eon. The son abides into the eon. The son abides permanently. The slave does not abide in the house permanently, but the son does. This is important because it's, it's Jesus calling back something that he's just said a second ago. The first verse in our passage, verse 31, says, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you meno, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he's setting up this contrast between people who abide in his words and these Jewish believers who were trying to uh, get their justification from their, uh, their cultural and religious and familial heritage, saying, you are slaves to your sin. Because you don't abide in my word, you don't abide in the house. The son abides forever. And then he goes on to do this really cool little linguistic thing. So therefore, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, taken right in the stream of that sentence there, it sounds like the Son of the household setting free one of the slaves. And indeed, maybe it is. But maybe it's also Jesus referring to himself. He commonly calls himself the Son of Man. He's telling them, your freedom from sin comes not from being descendants of Abraham because you are such slaves to it that you are not even part of the household. Your freedom from sin comes from living not in the household of Abraham, but in the household of my words. The second word is abide. And the second question is, what does it mean to abide in the words of Jesus? I've been thinking about that this week, and maybe you will... Join me in asking yourselves that question as well. One thing that we are uh, doing during Lent, and I would encourage you all to do this, even if you haven't tried it yet, it's not too late. You don't have to have, I'm not going to check your work at the end of Lent. You could do this starting now. It's fine. That is the, the discipline of scribing, which is very simply just copying the words of Scripture in your own handwriting. And I have asked you to do this with the passages that we're going to be looking at in Uh, In John each week, these are published on our website ahead of time. And again, one verse a day should be considered a success. If you can do more than one, that's great. But if you you don't have time uh, or you're not feeling it, one verse should be considered success. This is a very, very easy discipline to do, to try. It's not necessarily easy to do a lot of it. Um, The reason is, the reason that I've I've suggested it as our praxis during Lent is because I think it is one way to be shaped by the words of Scripture, which is our goal all year, but it's also a way that we might try to abide in the words of Christ. Because Jesus talks a lot in these passages in John, and if you are writing them down, you're living in them a little bit more than if you just read them to yourselves. So I would encourage you to continue to keep trying that. Or if you haven't tried it yet, I would encourage you to try it this week. It doesn't have to have a, you don't have to have a fancy notebook with a cross on it. You don't have to have a, a $14 fountain pen or an $80, you know, what are they, those graduation pens. Just get a piece of paper and a pencil and start, okay? You have to start somewhere. 
You don't have to be perfect from the beginning. Um, you're never going to be perfect anyway, so don't hold that standard to you at the beginning. That would be ridiculous. The first word was sin. The second word was abide. And the third word is word. <laughs> it's it's going to get confusing here, so <laughs> stay with me, friends. The third word is word. You may remember at the beginning of John's gospel, he uses this word, which in Greek is logos, over and over again to describe the incarnation of Jesus. He said in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Through him all things came into being, without him nothing came into being, which exists today. And the word became flesh and lived among us. That's logos, according to John. Jesus uses it in this passage, um, and for us, it, it offers a little bit of a bookend on, on the verses that we're choosing to look at today. Now, he's been going for a while. He's going to keep going in the same stream of consciousness here. I'm not suggesting that, that everything he's saying in this, in this one discourse is bookended by word, but it is today. The verses that we've chosen to look at today happen to be uh, begin and end with word, which I think makes it kind of a neat little thing. What is the first thing he says here on our passage this morning? If you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And at the end of the passage in verse 37, he says, I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there is no place in you For my word. What he literally says is because you don't have enough space in you for my word. You don't have the capacity for my word. You are trying to justify yourselves with your parentage with your connection to this religious stream. But it's not enough. You have to live not in the house of Abraham, but in the house of my words. That goes for us too, by the way. Let us not be too quick to dismiss these Jewish listeners because many of us were raised in a a religious tradition and many of us appropriate that for ourselves uh, kind of obliquely and we never make it real, and we just have this kind of inherited faith and expression of faith and act like that's going to be enough, but it's not. You don't understand like, how drastic and dramatic this was that Jesus would say to them that it doesn't matter if you're children of Abraham. It would be like me going into a, to teach a class in a, in a Christian college or Bible school and saying, you know, you are all slaves to sin, and they say, we're not slaves to sin, we prayed the prayer. When we were kids or teenagers or uh, at an adult crusade-type gathering in college, we prayed the sinner's prayer. We are justified. And, and for me to say, you think that prayer is going to save you? Or for a priest officiating a mass to, to offer the bread and wine to people and say, you think this is going to save you? No. That's how, that's how drastic what Jesus is saying here is. 
There's no room in you for my words. And so what is the consequence of that? When there's no room in us for the words of Christ, we, we resort to and fall back on our religious heritage and we try to kill him. That's what he says. Now, they eventually would try to kill him, literally. That's not really, I think, where we're headed. But sometimes we, 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 we can't hear what Jesus has to say. There's something blocking it. There's something, filling, something else filling us up, and there's no space in us for him. And so we reject him. And we rely on our parents' religion or... Um, we rely on our habit of coming to church and singing songs, great music. So my question related to word is this. What is it in you that's taking up space so that there is no room in you for the words of Christ? It may be that you have a temporal problem. Uh, a time-based problem, that your life is so full that you cannot make time for the words of Christ. It may be that you have uh, an emotional block based on something that happened in your past related to the Bible or to church. Many of us have that kind of blockage where the words of the Bible were used to hurt and wound and abuse. And so we, we don't have room in us to hear them as the words of Christ. Maybe you are more of a wanton rebellion kind of person. Uh, Maybe certain words of Scripture have stopped making sense for you and you don't have a new way to understand them yet. The creation stories or the historical stuff that causes you problems if you're a historian. And so you figure you're just going to chuck the whole thing. I don't know what it would be for you But I know that each one of us has something that competes to take up the capacity that would otherwise hold and contain the words of Christ. That's one of the things I've been thinking about this week for my own life, and maybe you'll join me in thinking about it in your life as well. Sin. The first word is sin. What does it mean to be a slave to the type of sin that means missing the mark? The second word is abide. How can we abide in the words of Jesus? And the third word is word. What is it that is taking up the space in our hearts and lives that rightfully belongs to the words of Christ? And and how can we drain that out, make space for him? Given that Jesus talks about sin and calls his new followers, and I think by extension perhaps calls us slaves to our own sin, I thought it would be fitting that we would pray our prayer of confession this morning in this time, um, right between hearing the word proclaimed and coming to the table of the Lord. So Aaron, would you put the the confession of sin on the screen? And I'm going to ask us all to uh, stand together. And pray this prayer, which we've prayed dozens and dozens of times together, um, and which believers in Jesus have prayed thousands and thousands of times. Let's make this our prayer.
before we come to receive the grace extended to us by Jesus at his table, shall we? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Stay standing for just a minute. I want to invite you to come to the table of Jesus. And I want you to think about Jesus as the coach, coaching you as the uh, archer athlete who is trying and just can't hit the gold. It is not Jesus with the bow and arrow trained on your heart. It is Jesus seeking to shape you and mold you and teach you and guide you to become the best, most accurate archer that you can be as you aim to live into his will. It is that same Jesus who conquered sin not with the sword, but with his own flesh and blood, who offered himself as a sacrifice for you and for me. It is that Jesus who invites you to his table And on behalf of him and the church, it is my great privilege to invite you to the table. All of you who would seek to get closer and closer to that gold center of the target as you walk and learn from Jesus are invited to this table. It's an open table at Artisan. Each one of you seeking to follow him and live your life for him is invited now to come to the table. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. You can take a piece of the bread and dip it Um, in the cups. We have both wine and juice. I'd ask you to use your judgment to choose the one that's most appropriate for you and your family. Uh, And if you'd like to collect your kids and involve them in this as well, you can. Uh, If you don't, um, please get them right after you take communion because they've been down there a while. I think I may have gone a little long this morning. Um, (laughs) Let's continue. They're they're at the doors. That's right. (laughs) You don't need to collect them, apparently. They're coming. Um, Let's continue to worship God in all the ways that he calls us to worship him. The table is open. Let's continue to sing. Uh, Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.